All right, I want to begin a brand new series with you, and so you might have seen the Facebook video that I made. We're going to start a four-week series leading up to our anniversary, so take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 16, 16th chapter of Matthew. And so this is a book that, that I really believe in. Does anybody else believe in this book here? We believe in the Bible. We preach the Bible. We call it unapologetic preaching at harvest. And so we want to do that this morning. I've titled it Awakening the Sleeping Giant, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13, down to verse 20. And I've titled this message, It's Time to Wake Up. Does anybody just absolutely love to wake up in the morning? Do I hear an hallelujah or an amen? It's falling flat. We just got one, just one, one person. That's it. Maybe two, two and a half. One of the worst, one of the worst, if not the worst sounds in all of the world is this sound. It's like, who invented this thing, huh? Who was that guy? Who was that girl? Don't you love it? Now most of our alarms are on our phones, but see, back in the day when you had something like this, it was just like against the wall, right, you know? But now you can't do that because you'd wreck your phone and your life is your phone. And so we can't do that. How much... Yeah, right. How much sleep do we actually sleep during a lifetime? I don't know if you knew this or not, but we sleep a third of our life. So if you live to 75 years old, how many years are you sleeping? 25 years of your life. So really, you're only alive 50, right? Because you're really not, I guess you're not dead when you're sleeping, but you're almost like that, right? You're unconscious. Actually, the, the longest sleep that anybody has ever had, I don't know if you knew this as well, was 11 days and 25 minutes. Somebody actually, it's a world record. You're saying, I'd like to try to beat that record. I can do that. I want to look at a picture with you. Look at this. This might represent somebody in the house here, huh? Is that you? <laughs> You're saying, that, that is me. I am a professional sleeper. I want to make it a hobby. Not a hobby. I want to make it a profession. It is a career uh, for me to, to be a professional sleeper. Awakening the Sleeping Giant, that's the title of the series. I want to talk to you about this for leading up to four weeks. This is an important series. I hope that you're here every week. The church is a giant. We're going to ask God to awaken the sleeping giant. I don't know if you knew this. There's some numbers that are going to be up on the screen behind me. Let's look at those. There are 400,000, roughly 400,000 evangelical professing Orthodox Christian churches in America. There are, in that bottom number is how many Christians are professing to follow Jesus in this country alone, 240 million. The church is a giant. It is a giant of great proportions. It has a lot of power. It has a lot of influence. It can do amazing things, but if it's sleeping, it's not going to do anything. And so the church in America, by and large, is a sleeping giant. What we're asking God to do in this series and do with our lives is to awaken us, to wake up. And so that's the title of this message. It's time to wake up. Let me just ask you a question at the front end of this message. Are you asleep spiritually? How many would say, you know what, in the last year or two, maybe three years, I have found myself falling asleep spiritually. I haven't been as awake as I need to be spiritually. And you want to say, yeah, that's been me. I'll be honest with you. Raise your hand on that. A lot of us. You know, and so God is awakening our church. He's awakening individuals. He's taking us to where we once were, to where he wants us to be. And a lot of that has to do with awakening to righteousness and sinning not. It has everything to do with perception of the glory of God, of understanding of his great purposes for our life. And so what we need to do is we need to pray that the church, the giant in this land is awakened. Can you imagine if the giant, the church in Reading was awakened? 
Can you imagine what would happen to the city of Reading? You'll hear me say this over and over again, that the problem isn't with the world. The problem isn't with the city. The problem is with the church. The Bible says that judgment begins at the house of God. And so when the house of God is right and the house of God is in revival and awakening and it's living for the glory of God, we call it verticality at harvest. If it's vertical and it's living to the honor of God and obedient to the principles of God, then the city will turn around and the country will turn around and your family will turn around. How many people would say, you know what, I was asleep spiritually and I've been struggling with being awake spiritually and I really saw the ramifications on my own family, my kiddos. Anybody like that? For sure. It happened. In history, church history, I love to uh, explore some of the things that God has done. In the 1730s and the 1740s, there's a couple of gentlemen I want to introduce you to. That's Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards pastored a church up in Northampton, Massachusetts. And so I like to go on some excursions. So I went to Northampton. As I went into Northampton that day to do some research on Jonathan Edwards many years ago, I crossed over the threshold of the city, and I sensed there's something evil in the city. Just going into the city limits, and the Spirit of the Lord was, was confirming that there was great evil in the city of Northampton in the area of lesbianism. I didn't know that at the time. It was the Spirit confirming that. And so I went around town. I tried to find where his original church was. And so uh, the original building that he had many, many years ago in the 1730s had burnt down. And so, but there is a church on that spot. And so as I approached this church building, which was itself very old, 1830s or so, there's a plaque on the ground that says, on this spot, Jonathan Edwards preached in 17-something. There's another man here that was used. His name is George Whitfield. And George Whitfield came from England and he preached all up and down the East Coast, and he and Jonathan Edwards linked up in, in partnership and ministry, and God started to awaken the church in this country. If you go up to New England, which is where Lisa and I are from, uh, you can go to these large boulders that are in the middle of these humongous fields, and there's a plaque on some of these boulders that says, on this spot, George Whitfield preached. And so I went and I got on those rocks and I would stand there and I go, and sometimes tens to 20,000 people would gather out in these fields and here, they didn't even have amplification at that time. This man could preach and he preached with the anointing. So Edwards and Whitfield were used of God during what is known as the Great Awakening. A lot of historians, secular and Christian historians would say that the Great Awakening was all of God's plan leading up to the foundation and formulation of our country because it made, listen, it made religion personal. It made religion, which was very, very stoic. It was very cerebral before all of that. And it wasn't to say that Edwards wasn't a great theologian because he's probably one of the best that the church has ever seen. And Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers. But all of that awakening was taking our individual lives before God in a personal way, which they had not really known for a long time. And that led to the formulation of our country about 30 years later. In the 1960s, and this is a great book I'm going to recommend, there was something called the Jesus Movement uh, or the Jesus Revolution. This is a book by Greg Laurie. Are you familiar with Greg Laurie, anybody? And so he wrote this. He was actually converted during the Jesus people, the Jesus people movement or Jesus movement or the Jesus Revolution. And so in that period of time, which I was born in 66, uh, the Jesus Movement, the awakening of the church or the giant started to happen uh, towards the end of the 60s. So I didn't remember any of that recommend you to read this book and see that God awakened his church in the 1960s. 
Some of the greatest churches that exist in this country are a result of men and women who were born again during this awakening. There's a quote in this book that I want you to see. It's going to be up here by Edwin Orr. He said this, I'm quoting, little by little the church loses its grip on essential things, becomes a social club, goes to sleep, or flies at a tangent. All over the world we find what? Sleeping churches and all around them are the gospel-starved masses. So here we have gospel-starved masses in Reading. And don't you know that they're walking like zombies in Reading? All you need to do is not even downtown, all over Reading. You can go to Wyoming, Shillington, you can go to, you know, Temple and, and Muhlenberg, all that area. You're going to see zombies. People are walking like zombies. They do not know the Lord. They, they are against the Lord. They are, in many ways and respects, dishonoring the Lord. They are dead in their sins. But those aren't the people that I focus in on that I'm, I'm primarily concerned about. Who am I primarily concerned about? Us. Because we're asleep. The church in Reading is sleeping. You're saying, why are you so hard on the church in Reading? Because if the church in Reading was living and awake and really living to the glory of God, then we would see Reading start to revive and change and people would be born again on large scales, but we're not seeing that. How do you awaken a sleeping giant? Why do people fall asleep spiritually? Why did you that raised your hand? What happened in your world? Look at these verses. Genesis chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. He had a dream and a vision during that dream. And he said, I did not even know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Let's go to another one here. Let's just fly through these. Romans 13, 11. Besides this, know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, the apostle Paul said, for salvation is nearer to us than that when we first believed. Let's, there's two more. 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Of course, he's talking to the Corinthian assembly there and using this terminology of uh, awakening and waking up as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And then we have Ephesians 5.14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's time to wake up as a church. Amen? And many people are waking up at Harvest Reading, and we give the Lord glory. Let me give you four out of the text. Matthew chapter 16.13 down to 20. And we want to look at some verses here that I think are going to help us to understand what it means to awaken as a church. How does God waken us up individually and as a church? And this is what we're going to find. We're going to see this happening in all of our lives. And so you wouldn't be here if you didn't have a desire to be here. I don't think you were dragged in. Anybody here dragged in? Were you knocked out before you came and then you were dragged in, put in the trunk of your car and brought in here? I don't think anybody was. You're coming in here because you want to be here. And if you want to be here, then that means that God is working in your life to do what? To waken you up. But how does he do that? I want to look at these with you. Take your little hand out. Take a pen. The church will awaken, number one, when we regain clarity. We must regain clarity. This is in verses 13 down to verse 15. I want you to look at verse 13. Very important. So take your eyes to the text. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, and here's the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? You see that? Are you there in the text? It's a great question. Jesus is being 
uh, very direct here with his disciples. He's asking them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, where is he asking that question? What does it say in the text? Or where's the context? What's it say? Are you there? And in, in where? The district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, why is that significant? Well, in Caesarea Philippi, you had pagan worship. You had the worship of Baal. You had the worship of Pan. I don't know if you're familiar with the worship of Pan. Pan was a goat on the lower part of, uh, of a person, and the upper part was human. So the upper part was human, the lower was goat, and, and so they worshiped in nature. It was, it was a, sexual, a sexuality type of worship, uh, and it was pagan to the core. You can go on Google, and you can, and you can punch in the worship of Pan, and it's still going on. And so this was, this was popular in the, the district here of Caesarea Philippi, but more than anything, it was Greco-Roman in nature, meaning the worship of Caesars. And so Jesus is asking a question, who is the Son of Man? Now, why does he put it like that? Well, you got to remember that there's, this is a polytheistic culture, many gods, poly meaning many, and theism meaning gods, and it was also pantheism, so pan would be all, and then theism would be God. And so you had this culture, and Jesus is wanting to clarify for the disciples so that they know who Jesus really is. It's all about an identity thing here. And so he's asking about who is the Son of Man. Now, why didn't he say the Son of God? Why didn't he say one of these other terminologies that he has used in the Gospels before? Well, Son of Man means a suffering servant. It means humility. And so you got, you got this humble suffering servant that they want them, Jesus wants them to look at him as as compared to the Greco-Roman pagan pantheism, polytheism of Caesarea Philippi. So you got Caesars elevating themselves in pride and arrogance, but you have Jesus as the son of man who humbles himself, and he comes as a suffering servant. It's all about this clarity of who Jesus Christ is. It's important for us to understand not only his person, but his work. Look at verse 14, it goes on, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now that's the same question that he's asking of all of us. And you want to know something, that a church will awaken, the giant will awaken when the church really looks at Jesus Christ, and they say, that is the Son of God, that he is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah. And you're going to see that Peter answers correctly. But the other disciples don't say anything at all. So here's this question put to the disciples. Sleepiness in the church results when God's people no longer see Jesus for who he really is. They have drifted off in their thinking. They have, they have moved Christ off, off to the sides and into the shadows of their understanding. But when awakening happens, when somebody like you and me really start to experience revival, then Jesus Christ becomes much more important to us than he's ever been. Would you agree with that? Aren't you finding that out when you're awakened? Aren't you getting to that place now where it's like, Jesus means more to me now than he's ever meant to me before, and I've been a Christian for a long time? Are you with me on that? When Jonathan Edwards was preaching, he wrote this, this narrative. It was called The Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in Northampton. You can go online, and it's just a long, long, long treatise on the work of the Spirit of God in Northampton during the Great Awakening. And one of the things that you'll read about in there is that the affections for Jesus Christ were intensifying as people became awake spiritually. This is what's going on here. He knows that these people are going to drift off 
So they need to know who he is, and they need to know who his works are. So let me ask you a question. Who is he to you? Who is he to you now? You're saying, I got born again at vacation Bible school. I got born again because mom and dad led me to the Lord when I was young. No, I'm just asking you, who is Jesus Christ to you as you sit there in that theater chair? When you look at him and, and you're looking into his face, is there affection that grows in your heart? And you're like, Jesus, oh Jesus. Do you remember the woman who came to him, broke through the crowd, fell at his feet, you know, and was weeping and her tears were falling on his feet? And what did she do with her hair? She, she dried his feet with her hair. Is that you? <laughs> this is where we need to go. Is it me? You want to awaken a church, awaken it back to the person of Christ and what he did on the cross. Amen? This is how you awaken out of the stupor, out of the slumber. We arise when Jesus Christ becomes everything to us again. I wonder he said to the Ephesian church in Revelation that you've left your first love. Where's the, where's the dudes in the house? Raise your hand. Dudes, guys. Guys, dudes. Where are you? Where are you again? Confidence, right? Do you love Jesus? I mean, I can go to the ladies and ask them, I love Jesus. And it's the guys, really, that have a hard time with expressing that affection for Jesus Christ. Can I see those hands one more time? One more time, guys. Dave Roach, do you love him? Do you love him, Tim? Do you love him, Seth? Do you love him? Who is he to you? It's all about perception. It's all about understanding, and it's all about emotions. It's all about those things when we talk about clarity. We need clarity. Number two, the church awakens when we reverence Christ. This is verse 16. You've got to reverence him, and this is what we'll see. Simon Peter is the one who responds. I love Simon Peter. I can't wait to get to heaven. It, it'll be Jesus, and then it'll probably be like Peter next, right? Or Paul, one of those two. I love Peter. I love Peter because he takes the initiative. He asks the Lord, on the Sea of Galilee during the storm, if he can come out onto the waves, and he does. Of course, he sinks, you know, but that's okay. At least he got out of the boat, amen? And so Peter's the one that responds. You have the other disciples, and if you're in pulpit curriculum this week for Harvest Groups is what we go through, then you're going to see some of the questions. We're going to ask you, what do you think about the other disciples? Why didn't they answer, but why does Peter do it? And he does it right. And so Peter is the one that initiates this, and he answers the question, and he's correct, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, I never wanted to answer the questions when the teachers asked them. Anybody with me here? You're afraid you're going to fail, right, and get embarrassed in front of everybody? You know, I would try, and it was wrong, and everybody laugh at me, so I would shut up. I wouldn't say anything ever again. That was me when I was growing up in school. That was me in high school and in college. Peter answers the question, and he gets it right. <laughs> that must have felt awesome. That must have been incredible. What does he say about Jesus? He calls him what? The son of the what? What's it say? The living God. Now, why does he put it like this? Remember, Caesarea Philippi. You had pantheism, polytheism. You had the great Caesars who were being worshipped. You had Baal that was being worshipped. Baal, pantheism, Pan are all dead gods. Dead. There's no life in them. And so Peter answers, and he answers by the power of the spirit of the Lord. And he says, you're the son of the living God. That totally contradicts what is going on in that culture, in that context, where, where he's trying to clarify who Jesus Christ is. And so what Peter does is he reverences Christ. 
he reverences, he worships him. He is El Elyon, God most high. God is, he is above every other small God in Caesarea Philippi. Listen, this is what wakens us, is worship. When you worship with a sincere heart, when you adore him, it's one of our pillars. It's called unashamed adoration. And so some of you are, are experiencing it, aren't you? When you worship and, the, and, the, and Scott and the team are just going vertical and it's all about Jesus and we're exalting him and elevating him and revering him, aren't you finding yourself all better off spiritually? Anybody? That's why it's important when we sing this last song as we close the service that you just sing it with everything that you have inside of you. You're saying, I don't feel very good today physically. I don't feel good emotionally. I don't feel good mentally. I would encourage you to put all those things aside and elevate and revere Jesus Christ, number one, and watch what he does in your life. You see, if you put yourself first, whether your circumstances are going bad, I get all that. But just keep revering him, reverencing him, and then he's going to make things work out the way it's supposed to work out. Worship him. This is what Peter does. I love this. Peter is a worshiper. He's a vertical worshiper. And the church always awakens when it goes back to vertical worship. Hands start to go up. Listen, hands go up. Tears start to flow. There's shouts of praise. There's hand claps that we give to the Lord when he is revered, when he is respected, when he is admired. Do you cherish him? Do you value Jesus Christ? Do you prize him? Is he the treasure of your life? Then you'll wake up. Amen? Number three. The church will awaken when we restore confessions. When we restore confessions. This is in verse 17 and 18. Now, now confessions were an important part of the history of the church, and we have to understand confession. What, what are we talking about when we're making confessions? The church was full and is full of false teachers and wingnuts. Amen? So what I do is I, I have this on my shelf at home. This is planters mixed nuts. This represents the church because we're full of a bunch of mixed nuts in evangelical Christianity. So I keep props at home. So if you come over to my office, you'll see sitting on my shelf, planters mixed nuts, and this is the church, full of mixed nuts. Confessions, these are important to the church. The Westminster Confession was a very important confession, because there was a lot of mixed nuts, planters, there was a lot of false teachers, and people trying to get into the church, 1647, some of the most godly leaders in all of England got together and wrote a confession. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. Peter confesses. You're going to see this. He's going to make a confession or a declaration. But how do we understand confession? When we think of confession, confession something, confessing something wrong, right? If you're a raised Catholic like I was, you would go to what? You remember those booths? What were they called? They were called confessional booths, right? And so you go into the confessional booth. It was kind of creepy because there's a priest in there somewhere, but you never saw him. You just heard voices, and you're like, whoa, okay. And so you go in there, and it's usually dark, and he's asking you questions. What would you like to confess, young man, you know, or son or whatever? And you would do that. You know, when we bought a Catholic church, our first church plant in Connecticut, they had two confessional booths in the corner of the auditorium. Do you know what we did with those? We smashed him to bits. We tore him up. We just, we just smashed it with a hammer. Now, why did we do that? Well, we need to make room for a staircase. That's one reason. But we did it because we don't believe that. Now, there's something with, you know, in your harvest groups or with another Christian being honest and open and vulnerable about your shortcomings and 
your sins. But you don't go to a priest. You don't go through a priest to, to get forgiveness of your sins. Who do you go to? Directly to God, right? So we smash those bad boys up. That's not the kind of confession we're talking about. When you want to awaken, you confess, you declare something. And this is what Peter does. Can we look at the verses together? Verse 17. Notice, and Jesus answered after he had mentioned him being the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, and he goes on, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But look at the confession here. He is the son of God. He is the anointed one. He's the Messiah of God. This is what awakens you. When you get to the place of being able to confess, make a declaration, you got to be confident in this. you got to be confident in what you believe. I remember when I was at the training center in Chicago, and uh, didn't know I was coming to Reading at the time. We thought we were going to Florida. That was the goal. And so Bradenton, Florida, that's where we thought we were going. And so God rearranged things, and Re Reading came on the radar. I remember talking to Bill Molinari. Now, Bill Molinari at Harvest uh, was way up there. And so you had James McDonald and you had some others, and then Bill Molinari was up there, and he's the one that signed for me to be accepted into the training center. So this was a big deal. And so Bill Molinari and I uh, got to know each other a little bit. And so when Redding came on the radar, he goes, Chris, come over here. And he's an Italian guy. Come here. Come over here. I want to talk to you. Kind of a scary, intimidating guy, but we got along. And he goes, hey, what about this Redding thing? You really want that? Yeah, I want that. You sure? I'm sure, Bill. So then it, it all was unfolding the way that God was providentially unfolding it. And so I said goodbye to Bill at the end of our training center time out there. And I went to give him a hug. And, and he goes, Chris, I hope it works out for you. I said, hope. I said, it's going to work out. That's what I said to him. I said, it's going to work. I mean, what am I doing? I'm confessing. This is, what you, this is what we need. We need to confess that Jesus Christ is involved in something, that his will is being unfolded. You know, and Bill's like, I hope it works out for you. No, it's going to work out. That's what I said to him. And then we hugged, and I said goodbye. I never, never talked to him since. Wouldn't it be cool for Bill to be sitting here confession. This is when you come awake. I was, I was wide awake when I was making that confession to Bill. I was alert. It's important for us to be like Peter here. Confession. We've got to restore these confessions to our personal lives and to the church. We got to believe. Like when we go up on Mount Penn, and I hope that you'll take a prayer drive up there sometimes. I do it regularly. When you go up on Mount Penn, confess. I am confessing, Lord, that you have called us to here. I'm confessing, Lord, that you're involved in our church. I'm confessing, Lord, that you have great things in store for our church. God, I'm confessing that you want to turn this city around. When I go to pray at the city council meetings, you know, and these leaders of the city are there, and I'm confessing, God, that you have led our steps here. God, I'm confessing that you're going to do something very powerful in this meeting. I'm confessing, Lord, that you're going to turn this city around. That's what awakens us. Confessions need to be restored personally and as a church. We make declarations. Number four, we recognize the calling. This is in verse 19 and 20. 
So we regain, we reverence, we restore, and now we recognize the calling. This is important, so stay with me. Look at verse 19, because Peter gets the calling here. And I tell you, Jesus said, verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now watch this, the call of God. Peter is getting this directly from Jesus himself. What God is going to do in and through Peter, and Peter was used mightily of the Lord. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The calling. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to the Jews. Read it for yourself. In Acts chapter 8, you'll see that he's preaching to the Samaritans. All of a sudden, the gospel's moving out. It's going further, and it's going further through Peter. And so this is coming true for him, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. So Acts chapter 2 to the Jews, Acts chapter 8 to the Samaritans. And if you go to chapter 10 of the Acts, you'll find him preaching to the Gentiles. Amazing man. Peter was, Peter was hearing the call. Listen, when you hear a call, you come wide awake. Have you ever gotten a call like at 3 or 4 in the morning and it's an emergency? Have you ever gotten that? Isn't it horrible? And you get this phone call and something happens. All of a sudden, what are you, wide awake? Are you still sleeping? You're like, you're alert. You're alert. This is what a call does. It did it to Peter. It woke him right up. Jesus wants to use him. I'm going to bring this to a close. I want to show you a picture of a young lady here. Do we have that picture up there? She was born in 1966, same year I was born. Uh, can't remember her name. I think it's Sarah. I think her name's Sarah. Uh, and so is it Sarah? You might have heard the story. You heard that story, huh? Uh, so when she was, I think, 17 or 18, she's crossing the road with some friends. They went out to uh, somewhere to eat, and she got hit by a car. And the car hit her. She flew up into the air. This other car hits her. And uh, she goes, obviously, to uh, surgery, emergency surgery, and and they did all that they could for her. She goes into a coma, and she stays in a coma for 20 years. 20 years. I watched the documentary the other night. It was just amazing. So she's in this rehab, or this, it wasn't like a nursing home kind of a thing. And, uh, and the nurses were there taking care of her, some for up to 20 years. You know what happened to Sarah? Uh, one day she started screaming. And she, she was trying to communicate. You know, and, and she did that for about four years. She just would scream when people came to visit. And, but one day, with almost perfect speech, she started communicating to the nurses. The doctors had never seen anything like this. So the nurse, when Sarah starts to speak, the nurse gets on the phone and calls Sarah's mom. And the nurse says to Sarah's mom, are, are you sitting down? Yeah, Why? She has no idea what's coming. 20 years going to visit her daughter. So Sarah gets on the phone and goes, Hi, Mom, it's Sarah. That's an awesome call, huh? Do you think Sarah's mom was like, Do you think she was nodding off, sleep, not alert, not awake? Do you think that she came to her? She was probably like adrenal overload. She's hearing her daughter for the first time in 20 years. Listen, God has called you. God has called this church. And when we hear his call, we awaken, don't we? We become alert. 
I have another picture I think that's up here. Can we? There he is. Okay. Does that describe where you're at spiritually? Because I know that God is awakening a lot of people at Harvest Reading, but not all of you. So do you need to be awakened? This is what we pray for. Can we stand to our feet? Waken the sleeping giant, Lord, the church of Jesus. Waken the church. Get us to the place of being awake to righteousness. Help us, Lord, to, to truly, truly hear your call. Okay, for those of you that said you're coming awake spiritually, but now we're going to be super, super bold because there might be some, you know what, I'm not as awake spiritually as I ought to be, and I want you to pray for me. This is not judgment. It's certainly love. And so you're at the place where it's like, you know what, I am definitely not where I need to be spiritually. I resemble the guy that was up on the screen at the end. I'm just kind of like yawning. You know, I'm not fully engaged, not where I need to be. Raise your hand on that. You need some prayer. Anybody else? We've got hands going everywhere. God, we thank you that there is honesty in the room here. There's transparency. We thank you, Lord, that you are awakening the sleeping giant, the church. We thank you that you're awakening Harvest Redding. Man, you have so many cool things in store for us as a church. But you're calling us as individuals to come out. You're calling us, Lord, to get to that place of more of Jesus and less of us where there's super clear understanding of who you are and what you've done. We want to elevate you, especially during this song. We want to reverence you. We want you to have the highest place in our life, not us anymore. It's you, Jesus, number one. Amen? Is that where we want to go with this? And we're going to confess to you, Lord, that, that you are God. You're the son of the living God, like Peter said. We pray that you would help us to live by confession, declaration. We're declaring over our families that our kids are going to come back to you. We're declaring over our wayward children. Why don't you say that underneath your breath? I'm declaring and I'm confessing that, God, you're working in our family. You are. Keep working in me, Lord. Help me to be the leader. And then the calling. You've called us. Let's tie the name of Jesus during this song. Maybe an act of worship. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Let's sing to him.